thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm, I'm, I am sorry about the weather and the misting. It caught me by surprise, too, especially because this morning I woke up, I had visitors from out of town, and they were saying, oh, and of course the weather's going to be perfect on our last day. And then sure enough, they get to the airport and it starts raining. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, we've had this very unpredictable and ever-changing weather all winter long. And today was one of those days that I thought was going to be sort of spring-like. Uh, maybe that'll be tomorrow. But it looks like the rain, the little mist is going to pass in a few hours. So I, I've learned to just ignore the weather app lately because it was basically every day this past week they were predicting rain. And uh, then we would wake up and it would say, oh, no rain today, but they're predicting it for tomorrow. And they just kept right. pushing it off. Face <laughs> in the rain. But I wanted to get started on Ruby Slipper because, as I mentioned, um, well, for one, you're an owner. And two, as I mentioned, I had visitors from out of town. And sure enough, the first place that we wanted to go was Ruby Slipper. Now, they came in on Friday, and I encouraged us to wait until Monday because of that uh, weekend crowd. But by, <laughs> by the end of the trip... Even though New Orleans is famous for all of this Cajun and Creole food, the one place that they all remembered and spoke fondly of was your cafe and brunch. So, oh, wanted... awesome. Which location did y'all visit on Monday? The one on Broad. Oh, nice. Okay, that's where our offices are. So that's the new headquarters that you moved yeah. to? Yeah, yes. Our headquarters are now upstairs from that location. Well, I, I absolutely love that location. Um, I'm going to give a shout-out to your new server who just finished her training that day, Jessie. She was trained by... Mike, I believe. Awesome. And so I just wanted to give them a shout out for a wonderful service. So that's well, the new location. We'll be sure to pass that on to um, our managers, our leadership team. You, you do a great job. Um, actually, I have a fond memory of when I was there during the World Cup and I was watching someone behind the bar training and giving them the uh, the three finger measurement or the two and a half finger measurement for uh, the cocktails on the menu. Yes. So, <laughs> I, I have fond memories of that. And so that's the new location. Now, the old location was a corner shop in Mid-City? Yes. Um, so the, originally, our original location was, uh, you know, kind of a former, uh, what in New Orleans we call a corner store, right? Um, historically had been there for a long time and had closed down after Hurricane Katrina. And um, some neighbors were able to purchase the building and had wanted to put um, their own uh business upstairs and we're looking for uh, something for the, the ground floor that was going to be good for the neighborhood. And uh, my husband and I had always told them they'd been trying to buy the building for some time before Katrina. And we'd always told them, if you ever get the building, you should really look at like a breakfast restaurant or a coffee shop selfishly because we like to eat breakfast and we like to drink coffee, not because we wanted to open one of those. <laughs> so, um, you know, kind of our, one of our big post Katrina life lessons was, uh, sometimes the person you're looking for is yourself and, um, you know, you got to take a risk and put yourself out there. And so, uh, yeah, we opened a coffee shop, a breakfast restaurant, you know, with great coffee right there um, on the corner of Cortez and Cleveland uh, back in 2008. What was the um, initial opening like? I, I can't imagine what the nerves were like opening up a restaurant after Katrina when the city's still in full recovery and people are just sort of seeking that feeling of normalcy again. Well, I, I think one of the really interesting things uh, you may not may or may not know, or your listeners may or may not know, that um, my husband and I are both engineers by education and um, career background. So 
uh, we honestly had no idea what to expect going into the restaurant business. Um, I, when, as you mentioned it, I don't particularly remember being too like stressed or nervous about it. It, it seems like a really fun thing at the time. <laughs> so, um, but you know, we're very, uh, you know, kind of engineering project management mindset, you know, very well organized going into that opening. And, um, we, we had so many of our friends and neighbors that, um, supported us and really made it their, you know, kind of their home along with it being our home away from home that, um, it was really a lot of fun. And that's sort of how the growth took off. I know you're currently growing at an amazing rate, especially for a restaurant. Uh, so you, you, you have a couple new locations coming out. I, I know about the new expansion in Mobile, uh, but you have a couple, do you have two new locations on the way? We actually um, have five new locations coming this year. Um, the first one will be in March in Franklin, Tennessee, which is um, a, a beautiful historic suburb that's just south of Nashville. And that is going to be our first location that we're launching under a new sister brand to Ruby Slipper called Ruby Sunshine. And so Ruby Sunshine will uh, debut in Franklin in March. And then um, we have another a Ruby Slipper location that's going to open here in the New Orleans area, um, on Old Metairie Road, um, just right after that, you know, kind of in the April time frame, And then, uh, we shoot back up to Knoxville, Tennessee, where the second Ruby Sunshine will open in Market Square, um, kind of in late spring. And then we have a couple other locations, uh, yet to be announced. So those will be, um, announced shortly. That's all exciting. Uh, but so you started off as this local little coffee shop cafe doing breakfast, lunch, and brunch, and then you expanded sort of neighborhood to neighborhood before taking that leap and going out of the city and out of the state. Is there a New Orleans culture to this restaurant, and is it does it translate well in these other cities? Does it have to adapt when it goes out of state and out of New Orleans, or is Ruby Slipper sort of its own entity and just everyone enjoys being happy with having breakfast food? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that's really interesting is that um, you know, as we got to our fourth location here in New Orleans uh, back in the beginning of 2014, um, was when we decided we were going to go to a market not in New Orleans and not in Louisiana. And so, of course, the, you know, kind of the biggest focus we had was how do we take the heartbeat, the breath, the vibe of this city and all the things that we love about our home in New Orleans and how do you bring that somewhere else without it being contrived, right? Um, And so what we found is that you know, there's just so much love for New Orleans. I think that was one of the things that grew out of, you know, kind of post-Katrina life. So many people in the country um, came to the city, you know, whether it was as a volunteer to help or um, to come spend their hard-earned dollars to help us rebuild by being here and, you know, eating in our restaurants and spending their money, uh, you know, at our hotels and things like that. We found this, you know, such a strong connectivity and people just have this love of New Orleans things in their heart. And so what we were able to translate is that, you know, kind of the culture of what it's like to be in one of our restaurants into the Pensacola market, which was the very first location that we opened outside New Orleans. And the team that we hired in Pensacola is, you know, kind of uh, every 
business owner's dream because they all just really embraced, you know, kind of what we are and what we do. And um, I, I think every location, you know, whether that's a neighborhood in New Orleans or it's, you know, a, a location that's not here brings their own local culture and, you know, feel into the restaurant as well. And it's really the melting of those two things together that make people fall in love with Ruby Slipper and, you know, soon to be Ruby Sunshine and some other markets where, um, you know, people come in and they they love the food. Uh, when we first went to Pensacola, we had, you know, a couple things you asked about the menu. And one of the things, you know, we really felt like, oh, we have to have a fish sandwich, you know, everywhere you go in, in Florida, they have like a grouper sandwich on the menu, right? So we, we actually did a few menu changes to try to add some items that we thought would be, you know, kind of the things that people expect in the market. Um, and also we went a little more lunch focused, um, because there's a, you know, heavier, it's a downtown area and there's a heavier business crowd and, you know, they're, they're coming for lunch. And what we learned, which was, you know, a, a really interesting eye-opening thing was that people didn't come to us to eat those things that they could eat at other restaurants. They came to Ruby Slipper because what we offer them is unique and different and that's what makes us special. And so as we, you know, kind of went beyond that, we, you know, took some of those items off the menu. We further modified them to really bring like the heart and soul of New Orleans back to um, that food in the creative way that we have blended this New Orleans vibe into our brunch dishes. And that's just the way we approach our markets now. Um, you know, just to let people know, like what we're going to offer you is not something you can go get anywhere else. And they seem to love it. So that's great. Are a lot of your, uh, consumers then outside of New Orleans, people who you think visited the city once and are just looking to recapture that nostalgia of a time when they were once here? I think when we first opened, like in uh, in Pensacola, for example, uh, I do think that there was a big draw for people who were from New Orleans or familiar with our brand and, you know, who might have been customers when they visited New Orleans once in a while and were excited about us getting, um, them getting their own Ruby Slipper location in their town, but I think it's grown, you know, the, the team there has done such a great job with hospitality and food quality and like really delivering guest experience, which is what we focus on. Um, it's made it where I, I, I wouldn't say that our customer base today is necessarily, um, has a, a super high percentage of people who've necessarily been to New Orleans. I think a lot of people have an idea, you know, from things they've seen on TV and, you know, know about the city of kind of what, what they think New Orleans would be like. What are the challenges of opening up a brand like Ruby Slipper, which is so well established in the city of New Orleans outside of it now with new locations in Tennessee versus opening new locations here. Cause I feel like when I hear an announcement of a new Ruby slipper in new Orleans, my thought process is awesome. Now, if I have a meeting in that neighborhood, I can grab some lunch afterwards. Whereas in a new market in a new city where people aren't necessarily familiar with your brand, I imagine getting this brand in motion and giving it some inertia is difficult. Right? No, I, I agree that, um, when you're, Going into a new market, we have some brand recognition, but it's very low compared to the total population. So you really have to go in and, you know, redefine your brand and reintroduce it, 
you know, kind of the same way we launched our first location here. And to us, it's really about the, like, on a grassroots and a community level, how do we connect to people? Because, you know, when we opened our first restaurant, which we never planned to open a second restaurant, but we opened that first restaurant, we did it because we wanted a place in our neighborhood that was going to be a gathering place that, you know, people were going to come to, whether they already lived there and they were in that process of, you know, slogging through rebuilding their home, or they were somebody who was looking to move into the neighborhood and trying to choose between our little corner of Mid-City and some other, you know, flooded and gutted neighborhood in New Orleans. Um, you know, we thought of it as this is a way to, to give us an amenity that maybe could help attract people. Um, and so we very organically and very um, community driven built our customer base, you know, which some people have said, you know, we have a cult following, we have extremely loyal customers, we love them and, and thankfully they love us too. Um, and so as we grew, that's always the challenge, even growing in your own market, it's like, how do you, how do you have the things that you want to have as a growing company, like consistency of guest experience, consistency of food quality, you know, consistency of the hospitality and, and those sorts of things. And then how do you balance those against people feeling like this is their neighborhood restaurant, regardless what neighborhood it's in. Um, so for us, that was, you know, kind of where I think some people would say the secret sauce that we were able to do because we went into a lot of, um, what you would call second generation restaurant spaces that, you know, kind of existed in a neighborhood and we breathed new life into them, but we also breathed a life that was cohesive with the personality of that neighborhood, you know, when we hire people from the neighborhood. And so it becomes in our, our, our wish and our goal is that it becomes a neighborhood hub. And so then when you translate that to, for example, Franklin, Tennessee, um, the very first thing that we did is we start going in and, you know, meeting the neighborhood organizations and meeting the school organizations and the same things that we did to build, uh, you know, kind of the community support in a really organic way here is what our Franklin team is doing on the ground there. So you see being a part of a community, being a gathering place in the community as a strong identifier for your brand and your logo. When people see that ruby slipper, they know this is a place that they could bring their family after church. They can bring their friends after um, or before school. It's it's a community hub. Yes, absolutely, and that's definitely been uh, a focus for us. Always staying true to the roots that we made at that first location. So, speaking of your your culture and your mission, I've noticed. That uh, being a social, having social missions and being environmentally conscious, that's a driving force in your culture as well. Now, is this something that you use in your marketing? Is this something that you use to help lure in a new crowd? Or is this something that's more of a well-kept secret that only your loyal customers know about and it's something that just keeps bringing them back? So I would say that... Um being socially driven and being environmentally responsible are really, I would say, in our DNA. And that comes from, you know, me personally, I've always been very focused on uh, community and rebuilding community and active in, you know, kind of community organizations and community engagement as an individual and a 
you know, residents and those sorts of things. And so naturally, um, as we built a business, then we wanted that business to um, also be available to help benefit these uh, community and other type groups. And, um, you know, you kind of start small with just that inner circle and then the word gets out and people know. I think in 2018 was when we first really said, you know, we could probably more broadly tell the story about what we do in communities. I think, you know, that and, you know, kind of what we do in communities, what we do for the environment, how we source product from scratch kitchens are four storylines that we haven't done a great job of telling because, you know, to us, it's just about like, Hey, that's just what we do. Um, but as we've grown and our customer base has grown, you know, we sometimes have to remind ourselves like, Hey, you have to tell your story. Um, so we like in, in 2018, we launched something called brunch for a benefit. And that was really the first time we kind of put a name to what we were already doing, um, with a lot of organizations. And we also, um, we added a position that's called, um, a community ambassador. And that is, uh, in the individual who does that job here for like the new Orleans, Louisiana market and supports the Gulf coast. That's the person who's like dealing with and handling all of the donation requests that we get, which is a lot, <laughs> um, participating in festivals and community events, then, um, helping, you know, when people want to raise money for their school or their, um, you know, sports league or whatever it might be, we, you know, really realize that this is something that, uh, we need to have a platform to help as we now have grown and get like literally thousands of requests. Like, how do you sift through all that? And how do you make choices about where you can slot things in? Cause you can't be like all things to all people, unfortunately. So we've, you know, really focused in 2018 and now going into 2019 on like, what is our social mission? And then how are we accomplishing that? And how are we staffing to accomplish that? So it's been really exciting. And on the environmental side, um, my background is in chemical and environmental engineering. So of course, you know, we started out with composting coffee grinds at our original location and giving them to the neighborhood um, garden that was across the street and, you know, recycling, you know, segregating our waistlines. Um, we've done, you know, like slop for uh, pigs for a farm that we partner with. You know, we kind of do different things in different markets based on what is available. Um, you know, it, it, those are the type of partnerships that as you grow, they seem to be a little harder to find. Uh, it's not like there's a a company that is across multiple markets saying like, we'll take your waste food for pig slop or um, there's a nonprofit that we work with in New Orleans that would come pick up at the end of the day uh, food that we were not going to serve the following day and um, take it to some of the um, homeless shelters and things of that nature. So we've kind of put our hands into a lot of different things over time, trying to find like, you know, who can we partner with that we can really make this sustainable. And some cases it has been sustainable in some cases it hasn't. I think it really does. The more I hear about it, the more it makes sense to have a business that's primary service is nurturing other humans to also then have a social mission because you're, you're, you're bringing happiness and life to all of these people. And then in response, you're also bringing happiness and life to the community as a whole. And I think it's fascinating that you're incorporating a background 
with engineering into an environmental mission into a business as well. I do have one question, though, about the social mission. I know most recently you were feeding federal workers during the government shutdown. Uh, yes. How quick was the decision to move forward on that? Um, and do you have any numbers on how many workers you were feeding? Yes. Yeah, so I feel like... I feel like it was about the end of week one of the shutdown when, you know, it was a Friday. I remember being in the office and I had read a news story and, you know, it was kind of clear to me that, okay, this wasn't going to end over the weekend. And, you know, gee, we've always done these um, community support activities related to natural disasters, right? So we lit, you know, we built our business off of wanting to rebuild after Katrina. And so we have a, a high amount of empathy when other regions and people get hit with storms and things of that nature. So we, you know, we did a Hurricane Michael um, relief for several months and it just kind of dawned on me like, well, we've always thought of it in this natural disaster framework, but, you know, this is a, for these people, this is a financial disaster to not be getting paid. And then the, the kind of the level of uncertainty was really ratcheting up, I felt like. So we, we I kind of threw it out there on Friday and by Monday, we're like, okay, this is what we can do and we can announce it on social media. And I think we announced it on Monday night and it started on Tuesday. I think it was January the 7th when we started. And we ran it from then until the weekend that the shutdown ended. Um, in that time period, we served about 7,000 people and um, it was about, you know, kind of $55,000 in uh, donated meals um, across all of our locations. The highest impact was um, here in New Orleans at our Broad Street location that you mentioned earlier. Um, we saw, you know, tons of people, I think partially because we have a really great parking lot here. So if people were the folks who had to work and weren't getting paid, you know, they knew they could come park the car, get in, eat and get out at a reasonable amount of time. Um, but we, you know, in Pensacola, there's a Coast Guard ship. So we fed the Coast Guard a lot in Pensacola. There's in Mobile, there was also a Coast Guard um, ship that was doing a search and rescue in the Bay. So we fed them for several days. Um, lots of like the FBI offices, Department of Justice, um, you know, folks from here in New Orleans area, like the uh, Mishu uh, out in the east, we saw a lot of folks from, you know, logistics and stuff from there. So you are operating a business that's undergoing pretty rapid expansion while dedicating a large amount of time, resources, and energy into these socially driven missions. And you just said it yourself during government shutdown, uh, it's the, the amount of food that you were feeding unpaid government workers is around $55,000. So what do you have to say sort of to uh, young businesses and growing businesses that feel like they can't take on the responsibility of a socially driven mission or an environmentally conscious mission? So I think that, you know, if those, if those are things that you have in mind, you take the first step, you do the thing that you can do. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be at the level that we were able to do in these instances. Um, I saw other small restaurants that, you know, they did like a one day dinner or they said, you know, free coffee or so it's like, to me, it's always about don't start from what I can't do, say, 
what could I do? What could I bear a cost of? You know, what is the thing that I have that I could do? And to me, it's about changing that person's day and that guest experience. And I really believe that the things that you put out in the world that you give to people come back to you, you know, time and time again, many, many times over. Um, and so you just pick what you can do. And if, if you want to do something social and you, you think like, all I can do is a few things for my neighborhood school, that's great. That school will appreciate it. You don't have to offer the same thing to every school in your city. If all you can do is support, you know, a scout troop, that's great. They're going to appreciate it. So don't feel like you're going to open the floodgates because you can, you can say no. And just as long as you kind of lay out for yourself, what is it that I can do? And so similarly on the environmental side, you know, we started with composting um, coffee grinds and we just basically built that into our steps of how we did work. Um, It's very hard to change once you have things established, you know, to get people to segregate streams, after the fact is always difficult. So it's like what you can do on the front end to say, this is just the way we'll do it. You'll be surprised at how, um, how easy it can be if you start from that mindset. And how easy it all falls into place. Um, yeah, absolutely. 